If you'll take your copies of God's Word then, I invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Romans. In chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 19 through 23. 19 through 23 of Romans 9 in our sermon entitled, The Potter's Prerogative. The Potter's Prerogative. As we continue to walk verse by verse through uh, Romans 9. Our sermon series, God's Righteousness Revealed. We're in chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, and the text reads, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, (coughs) has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear it. Let us heed it. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, it will stand. Indeed, it will stand forever. I watched a video this week, and it was a heartbreaking, tragic video. It contained two people. That first time I watched it, I didn't know who they were. The, the second time, I realized that I, that I knew and recognized one of the guys that was uh, mentioning them. When I, when I heard his name, I understood who it was. Uh, these are two guys, one of whom was a, 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 a lead songwriter and singer in a folk Christian folk rock band that I used to listen to a lot when I was in college and um, the last few years he has done what they call deconstructed his faith which seems to be a popular thing especially among Christian songwriters for whatever reason Um, and there they were in this In this interview, two men who had formerly professed faith in Christ, who had grown up under sound theological teaching, even reformed doctrines of grace, and had that kind of understanding of the Bible, as it were, and men who are now apostate, now who no longer profess faith in Christ, who Uh, no longer claim to be believers. And here they were in this discussion, this short video, and they were blaming God for their current unbelief. They were uh, using, even twisting and perverting the doctrines of sovereign grace to somehow excuse their own refusal to come to God for salvation. 
to they 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 blame God for their unwillingness to take Christ by faith and thus be saved. And in doing so, in their refusal and their blaming God and their making excuses for why they were dead and blind and unbelieving, they were showing precisely how dead and blind and stiff-necked they all were to fail to believe in God. And it's that kind of sitting in judgment upon God and making excuses and blaming God for the way that He's made us that is being talked about here in our passage that we see is being discussed by Paul in Romans in verses 19 through 23 of chapter 9. I want you to look. Look how, how many questions there are. That, that Paul is making a bunch of questions of the text. And he's using these questions not because he doesn't know the answer, but he's, these questions are assertions in many ways that he is making. Why does he still found fault? Who can resist his will? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its, mo- make, to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? Do you see question after question after question? And then in, even in verse 22, what if? What if God desiring to show? And so in many of these cases, he's not simply asking questions as if he needs information. He is making assertions by the way that he is asking the questions. Kind of like Jesus did a lot of times. By, he made a point by asking a follow-up question to the individuals that were uh, confronting him. And so there in verse 19, I want you to first of all see from this text an accusation concerning the responsibility of man. An accusation concerning the responsibility of man. The text reads in verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? This objection or allegation, this accusation as it were, is arising from what has just previously been said in the argument, in the text itself. Paul has been setting forth the case of God's sovereign mercy and election. He's concluded that it doesn't depend on human will or human exertion, but on God and His will and His mercy, that it's not by works, but it's by God's purpose of sovereign election. It, has, it depends on God who has mercy on whomever He wills and who hardens whomever He wills. And then from this idea of God hardening some, His choosing to harden some and, and hardening whomever it is that He wills, that this objection then arises. Then why is it if God would harden whomever He wills, 
Why is it, the question says, then that he still holds us responsible? Why is it that God continues to blame us? Why is it that God would still judge us if his will and not our will is ultimate? Why does he still find fault with us if we are simply in some way following what he has ordained, following what he has determined? So the objector's syllogism, as it were, his, his deductive reasoning is that God holds men responsible for their decisions, for their actions. And then secondly, God's will is also irresistible. God's will has determined to harden some and His will is irresistible. And God yet still holds men responsible for their actions. Therefore, He's saying that God is unjust. He's suggesting that God is unrighteous. The the objector, not Paul, but the objector is saying, if it's the case that God has willed that some be hardened, and God's will is irresistible, and God still holds these men responsible for their decisions and for their actions, then that means that God is somehow unjust and unrighteous. But Paul has already answered that conclusion that is there injustice or is there a lack of fairness or a lack of righteousness in God's part? And he says there is no injustice in God's part. By by no means is there any injustice in God. Paul finds the, the defense of God's righteousness in the sovereign mercy of God. And that he says, he says, for he says to Moses, I will, back in verse 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In telling this, he's, that he said this, God said this to Moses in the context of proclaiming his glory and, and showing Moses his glory and proclaiming his name, saying, This is the very fundamental to who I am as God, that I will have mercy on whom I will. It's part of what it means to be God, to be able to make choices like this. Something he's going to continue to say as the creator, as the molder, as the potter. He has the right to make these kind of sovereign choices over whom he has mercy and over whom he hardens. So that's kind of how the objection goes. You will say to me then, why does he still blame us? Why does he still hold us responsible? Why does he still find fault with us if his will is irresistible? If he's determined to harden us and his will is irresistible, how can God still hold us responsible? Well, he's, he can't... Paul has already determined then that it's not in, there's no injustice... No unrighteousness in God. God has not acted unrighteous in any way in this. Can we then attack one of these other premises of the argument? Can we knock one of the other legs out of what Paul is saying? First of all, does God hold men responsible for their actions? Overwhelmingly, yes. 
He does. Our decisions have consequences. Our actions have consequences. He's laid this out throughout the early part of Romans, hasn't he? That the wrath of God in chapter 1 is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth is it that they suppress? What is it they hold back? It is the knowledge of God and His existence, what He is like, His divine power, His invisible attributes. And all of that, he says, are clearly perceived, for God has shown it to them in the things that He has made, so that no one is without excuse. Men, though, though they know what God is like, Though they know that He exists, they know what He's like, they know what God demands, they know that their sin is deserving of death and judgment, still people suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness because they don't want to believe it, and they exchange that truth about God and His holiness for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, for the creature is more palatable to them than this holy God who will bring judgment upon them. So Paul has has said overwhelmingly that we are by nature creatures of wrath and and under the children of wrath and, and, and who walk in our own disobedience and will be judged for our actions. So does God hold men responsible for their actions? Absolutely. Can't be denied that God holds humans' responsibility. What about this second idea? Can we resist the will of God then? And I want you to see that Paul assumes the answer to that question is no in the very way that he poses the the question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist His will? And the answer to that that Paul assumes is no one. No one can resist the will of God. We're not talking about God's moral will, what God would prefer. For instance, God wills that nobody commit murder or that no one lie. lie. That's His revealed moral will, as it were. And yet people commit murder and lie all the time. So they resist his, his preferred will. We're talking about God's secret, his, his will of that which He has ordained, that which He has uh, decreed from before the foundation of the world. Who can resist God's determinative will being played out? And the answer is no. And so other scriptures overwhelmingly confirm this. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 6, He said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. So how many people can withstand God? None. No one is able to withstand Him. In Job, in chapter 9 and verse 12, we find, Behold, God snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to God, what are you doing? The answer, of course, is no one. No one is able to say such a thing. Nebuchadnezzar found this out in Daniel chapter 4 
Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? No one can resist the will of God or stay His hand. As Augustine rightly concluded, the will of the Omnipotent One is undefeated. And so Paul recognizes that we have a real paradox here. Not, not a contradiction. A paradox, you know, is different than a contradiction. A paradox are two things Two premises that seem to be at odds with one another, but are actually not at odds with one another. There is tension here. And where precisely is this tension? Where precisely is this mystery? It is between the sovereignty of God over all things and the responsibility of man for the decisions that he or she makes. And so there is a real mystery. How is it that mankind can be responsible for the decisions that they make and God have sovereignly determined all things that come about? And we can't knock either one of those legs out from under the truth because Paul affirms both of them. Spurgeon was once asked, How is it that you can reconcile God's divine sovereignty with man's responsibility to obey God? And Spurgeon, as only he could, said, Well, I don't. I never try to reconcile friends. So there is a tension here, and yet it is not a tension in the mind of God in any way. It perfectly works out for him. Secondly, I want you to not only see an accusation concerning the responsibility of man, but an analogy about the rebellion of plates and cups. An analogy about the rebellion of plates and cups. When he's asked then, why does God still blame us for who can resist his will? The answer in verse 20, and it is an answer. It's not merely Paul punting. It's not God giving a non-answer. There's an answer to him. The answer here is, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? The first of all, the thing I want you to see is, the answer that Paul gives is not the answer that many would have you expect at this point. Most people, even people in churches, even some pastors, if you ask them, what do we do with God's sovereignty and human responsibility, what will their answer inevitably be? It will be man's free will, right? And Paul doesn't say, all this is solved by the free will of man. Paul doesn't give that answer at all. 
to, to this. He doesn't say, well, see, man freely chooses to, unbe- to not to believe. Well, that's, that's true, but that's not what Paul says. Paul instead says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? So Paul doesn't resort to some explanation about the freedom of man's will. Instead, Paul resorts to an explanation that finds the freedom in God to do according to His will. Paul doesn't deny that God's will is ultimate here. One thing that means then, as we look at these objections that are being made, and what Paul says is that we have interpreted the passage correctly thus far. For the very objections that have been made thus far show what we're saying. They, show, they are the natural conclusions to what has been said. Our interpretation thus far of the passage stands as the correct one. And notice that his answer then is to first point out to us and to remind us of our creatureliness. That God is the Creator and that we are but human beings. Human beings, yes, made in the image of God. Human beings, yes, who have dignity and value and significance by the way that God has made us. But still, when we are put Next to God, we are not on equal footing here. God is the Creator, and we are the creatures. John MacArthur has said, The nature of Paul's reply here makes it clear that he is not addressing those with honest questions about this difficult doctrine, but those who seek to use it to excuse their own sin and unbelief. There are men here, there are humans here who are presuming to be on an equal footing with God and thus to try to bring God into the dock, to try to answer back to God or talk back to God. They are putting God on the witness stand and they are questioning Him and sitting in judgment upon God and saying, why have you done this? Why have you done this? How could you, O oh God? And so they are not asking as, uh, you know, Francis Schaeffer once said, we should give honest answers to honest questions. But in this case, what Paul is revealing is the question is not all that honest. That these are people who wish to answer back to God, to excuse themselves and to blame God. As I saw these two men in this video doing. They're putting God on trial, presuming to sit in judgment over Him. And what Paul's ultimate does is he reminds us as Isaiah does of who we are as creatures. And who we are, Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 15 following says, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. 
Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say of Him who formed it, He has no understanding. Do you hear echoes of Isaiah 29 then and what Paul is now claiming of them? And Isaiah 45, 9-12 is also behind this. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the One who formed Him, Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth, He says, and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. Do you remember when Job had questions for God? Real questions. Why these things that he was experiencing was he going through? And Job lamented before him. And he, he, he knew it was not because of something that he had done precisely that he was experiencing this, this judgment, these, these horrors, this suffering, his family's death, his personal illness, the lack of, all, of so many of his possessions. And he was, he was suffering and he was calling out to God and was wondering why this was happening. He wanted God to answer him. He wanted answers from God. He was de- demanding answers from God. And at the end, do you remember that God showed up? What did God say? A lot like what is happening here. God spoke to Job out of the whirlwind and his answer was, Where were you, Job, when I made all of these things? Do you know how to make it snow, Job? Do you know where I keep the snow? Do you know or did you decide how far the water in the ocean would come and how tall the waves on the seas in the Indian Ocean would be the day that you were born? Do you know where the the rock badgers give birth to their young? And did you, you know, hang the constellations in the sky? And so he said, gird up your loins, Job. Get ready, because I'm about to ask you some questions. Since you know so much and are so wise and understanding, Job. Parents, you've been here, haven't you? Your kid asks you a question, and you might could kind of answer this question, but you know they're not going to understand this answer. They're not going to understand at all the answer that I'm going to give of why some things happen the way that they do. And so in many ways, God can give us an answer that's beyond our understanding. And it's not ours to ask, but it is ours to trust as little children. To trust the will of God, the goodness of God, the character of God in these things. To trust what God is like. 
not just our children. Imagine going outside to, to one of the many anthills that we have here in the churchyard. And to try to explain why it is you do what you do to a bunch of ants. And to have them try to comprehend for a moment why it is that you are smashing them or whatever it is that you're trying to get rid of them. Imagine trying to explain. You say, well, we're not ants, we're humans. Listen, you're closer to an ant than you are to being God. Because you and ants are both creatures. God is the creator and the maker of all things. MacArthur says, Paul argues that it is irrational and far more arrogant for men to question God's choice of certain sinners for salvation as for a piece of pottery to question the purposes of the potter. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And so we are like so many glasses and cups and plates and and vases and are asking the one who made us why he's done that and expecting to, to find an answer. It is our, in our rebellion that we do so. But I do want to take this moment for a little while and discuss free will and what it is and what it isn't. Because the common understanding of what free will is, is not the biblical understanding of free will. God has given us free agency to to make questions and to, to make decisions. And our decisions and the the that we make, the choices that we make, determine our our destinies. They they have consequences, these choices. But we see from this text and many others that the biblical understanding of free will is that it must be compatible with God's absolute sovereignty as well as with human responsibility. That you and I naturally choose. That we naturally make decisions. But that these decisions are in the counsel of our own will. We're not like Pinocchio's where we think we're real humans but in actuality we're just puppets, just marionettes on God's stream. We're not robots or automatons of, of some kind where we are programmed for this or for that. We're not forced against our wills to make the decisions that we make. You make the decisions that you make after the counsel of your own will and because of a variety of factors. But you make the... You're not forced by God and you know good and well that you're not forced by God for the decisions that you make. Imagine if I had a, a child that was throwing a tantrum and they threw down their toy in the midst of the tantrum that they were throwing. And I, as the parent, said to them, pick that toy up. And they stood there. And I said, this never happens, by the way, at our house. Just listen to And I said, pick, pick that toy up. 
and they just stand there. And I go over and I grab their arm and I take their hand and I wrap their hand around that toy and I pick that toy up with their hand and I walk them, drag them to the toy closet to put it up. Is that the way that God does with us? No. You are guilty for the decisions that you make because you choose them of your own will and volition in accordance with your own nature. Like a lion that chooses meat over salad, you are the same way. And you would prefer your sin. So it's not the case that we have the freedom philosophically to do that which is contrary to our nature or contrary to our will. I mean, or contrary to God's will. But that our choices are compatible with God's sovereignty. I want you to tell you, as we kind of talking about, we're in deep water in these discussions. We recognize that we talk about God's sovereignty, human responsibility. These are deep mysteries. And we're talking about eternal destinies. And I, I want to mention something, maybe clear up a, a possible misunderstanding here. In this discussion that we're having, there are two hypothetical people that do not exist. When we're talking about children of the flesh and children of promise, talking about vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath, there are two hypothetical people that do not exist. The first is that there is no such thing as the reprobate man, the man that God has chosen to pass over, the, the man that God hardens as what, or allows his heart to be hardened. There's no such thing as that reprobate man who loves God, who wants with all his might to believe in Jesus and to trust in Jesus and has professed faith as it were, and who loves the Word of God, submits himself to the Word of God, and yet because he has not been chosen in eternity past, he goes to hell even though he loves God, believes in Jesus, and submits to the will of God. That person doesn't exist. The second person that doesn't exist is that there's no such thing as the elect man, the man that God has chosen <coughs> the man that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, yet who all his life fails to love God, never comes to faith in Christ, dies in unbelief and unrepentance, but because of God's choice, he somehow goes to heaven despite his failure to ever take hold of Christ, to ever believe in Christ, to ever come to faith. That person doesn't exist as well. All whom God has chosen, all whom God has shown mercy will come eventually to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They will hear the gospel, they will submit to the gospel, and they will believe. And anyone who does come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who is genuinely 
converting, they submit, and they bear fruit. That person was chosen before the foundation of the world. Thirdly, I want you to see an assertion concerning the right of the potter. Here in verse 21, an assertion concerning the right of the potter. Has the potter, he says, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Again, this isn't the form of a question, but it's actually an assertion, isn't it? He's saying the potter absolutely has rights over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. You understand this concept of honorable use and dishonorable use, right? When company comes over, I'm, I'm not allowed to drink out of the, the gas station cup, that you know, the big gulp, so to speak. When company comes over, we have to use the nice glasses. Or, or the, you, you have maybe china at your house that stays in a cabinet that you never use and silverware that's nice, that's, you know, imported from England or something that's been handed down through your family and that you've eaten off of twice in your whole life. These are, these are the kind of things that you have. These are honorable vessels, as it, as it were. But then you have the, the everyday plates. Or at our house when you have nine paper plates. And so we see that we understand this, that there are, there are vessels for honorable use that are everyday where, you know, you can make a, a I guess if you're making pottery, uh, he can make a bedpan, as it were. <laughs> Some for dishonorable use. Some things for, to go into a, a king's palace that is eventually going to be overlaid with gold leaf or something like that. The potter can on his will take two lumps of the same clay and make one into that one thing and one in the other. The kids with Play-Doh can do the same thing. I can ask them, what are you going to make? What should I make, Daddy? No one ever asked, God never asked that to anybody else. What should I make? What should I make? No, he's the creator. He has absolute right over the clay to make whatever he wants to make for the purpose that he wants to make it. That's what it's saying here. That's just simply the acknowledgement that he's saying here. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And we have to acknowledge that, don't we? Oh Lord, you're the potter. You're able. You have the rights. The creator has the right. Any artist has the right to paint whatever he wants to paint. And he has the right to, to tear it up or to put it in a castle wherever he wants to put it. Fourthly, I want you to see an application pertaining to the reasons for God's actions. An application, and again, the application is is put in the form of a question: What if God? But it's more than a mere suggestion here, isn't it? He's actually giving a reason here. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. First of all, I want you to see from this verse there are two types of vessels. We already talked about two types of vessels, two types of vessels that any potter might make, one for honorable use and one for dishonorable. The honorable use here are the vessels of mercy, as it were. Those that God has chosen, these elect that God has shown sovereign grace and mercy to that are going to heaven, who come to Jesus. Then there are these that God hardens. These are dishonorable vessels, vessels of wrath. He calls them here. Two types of vessels. I want you to see also here two methods of preparation. That one, the vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. And secondly, the vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. There are two different tenses to the verbs that are used here. And that, that's intentional, I think, by, by Paul. When he says here that there are vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction. It doesn't say who exactly is doing the preparing here. That they're prepared for destruction. There, this, is, this is a verb that is in what's called the middle voice. That means that these are vessels of wrath that are preparing themselves for destruction. It doesn't mean, it's, it's like when we said that God hardens whom He wills. God indeed is an agent in this hardening. But so was Pharaoh, who hardened his own heart. And so both things are true at the same time. Both that God hardened Pharaoh, and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God's will is ultimate here, but we see that Pharaoh was active in choosing the hardening. It's what we just explained, isn't it? That our wills act in accordance with our nature and our fallenness and our sinfulness. As slaves to sin, we have the ability to choose, but we will choose the sin and not the good. And so we see here that these vessels that God has chosen to pass over for destruction are are in themselves preparing themselves for destruction by this sin. What I'm getting at is that we see the opposite is the case with the vessels of mercy. God has prepared them beforehand for glory. He's predestined them. He's called them. Justified them. He's sanctifying them. He's preparing them for glory. As it were, if we go back to Romans 8, they're called not by works, not dependent on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. The point is that these methods of preparation, as it were, one is merited and one is unmerited. Do you see that? That the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction are receiving precisely what is due to them. And the vessels of mercy don't, uh, don't owe it, is not owed to them at all. It's given to them by grace and sovereign grace alone. There's nothing in them that's good or has done anything good or, or has done anything to deserve this. It's completely and utterly unmerited. I want you to also see there's two manners of God's dealing with these two types of vessels. Two postures, as it were, that God takes in His uh, stance toward these. 
that the vessels of mercy or the vessels of, of wrath we see that He has bestowed upon them a patient endurance. Do you see that? That He has endured with much patience these vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction. While for the vessels of mercy He has bestowed rich and gracious favor on them. So they are treated favorably while the Lord is sovereignly patient and enduring with them. We've seen this patience already in Romans in, in chapter 2 that, that we see specifically with Pharaoh. Can we, can we read the story of Pharaoh who is the object of God's hearting or the story of Esau or the story of Ishmael that have been given? Can we read those stories and not see God's patience with them? That they didn't have opportunities? How often did, did Moses come to Pharaoh? At least ten separate times, right? Let my people go. And Pharaoh refused again and again to let his people... Did Pharaoh not get what he precisely what he deserved? God was being patient. And this patience demonstrates God's kindness and His forbearance. He says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Why? Because they presumed on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. They had opportunity to repent, but they did not. And then finally, we see from this verse three purposes here, right? To the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, God desired, He had the purpose to show His wrath and to make known His power. And to the vessels of mercy that He prepared beforehand for glory, He desired to make known the richness of His mercy. So his three purposes in doing what he's done in sovereign election and sovereign hardening are to show wrath, to make known his power, and to magnify his rich glory. He desires to show wrath. Proverbs 16.4 The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble, Proverbs says. In 1 Peter 2.8 The Lord has set us in Jesus Christ a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense that they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do it says so so he shows his wrath as he has um, as he's chosen them as vessels of wrath and to make known his power we look back at verse 17 this is what he said about Pharaoh isn't it why harden Pharaoh? For this very purpose, he says, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has acted both to show his power in Pharaoh and also to magnify the glory of the Lord, which is the third reason. That he is also towards his vessels of mercy. He has... What he is doing is he is making known the riches of his glory. The God who is rich in mercy 
because of the great love with which he's loved us, has saved us by his grace, has made us alive together with him in Ephesians 2, 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul would even say in Ephesians 3, 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so here, here he gives the reason for this sovereign mercy, sovereign election, why he can have mercy on whomever he wills, why he hardens whomever he wills. It is to desire to show his wrath, to make known his power, in order to make known the riches of his glory. His purpose according to election stands then, we see. We go back and what we see is that God has not acted with man as ultimate, but God has acted for His name and for His glory. It's why He shows mercy on whom He wills, because it is what it means to be God to do these sorts of things. And what Paul is ultimately saying is, if God has purposed things so as to achieve these ends, to make known His power to show His wrath, to magnify His glory. If God has done this, then what objection can any of us rightly make to God that will stand? What objection can we do in this case? There is none. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, work.